0: Welcome to The lucatino Show, where we can learn to reimagine our lifestyle. Dr. Jonathan Fisher, thank you so much for being part of our podcast, The lucatino Show, Reimagine Your Lifestyle. I just have to say from the time we met in California in January earlier this year till now, I think it's been an amazing journey meeting you at that dinner and continuing our little conversations right up till now. But thank you so much for being Part of the show, I think having someone like you plays an integral part of what we're trying to do, empower people with knowledge. You're a clinical cardiologist. You're a mindfulness teacher. You're literally one of the most passionate and compassionate doctors I've ever come across. Not that there aren't any more, but the way you spoke about your subject so passionately back at the dinner in California, it's a pleasure and a privilege to have you on our show today. So thank you so much for being your
1: Doctor. Mm. It's a pleasure. Luke, it is very much mutual. Uh, The moment I met you, there was something special about you. You were very grounded and you were very settled and very steady. You weren't pushy, you weren't leaning forward or back, you were solid in yourself. And I could see that there was a depth there. I said, I want to get to know Luke better. So when you invited me, I said, oh, I can't wait to talk with you again
0: and doctor i'm so excited about your new book coming coming out very soon we'll talk about that really soon can't wait to get my hands on a copy because it's just fantastic what you're covering in that book so we'll come right into it but for our amazing audience all over the world and especially across india we would love to get you you know get to know you a little bit more your journey's been fabulous a mm-hmm. clinical cardiologist over 20000 hearts and all of that stuff and then you have this shift into a completely compassionate project, which is burnout amongst doctors. Mm-hmm. And you you're a meditation teacher. So I'll let you I'll let you share your story because only you would be able to do justice to that. Over mm-hmm. to you. Why did you even get into medicine and take us through your journey right up to now?
1: Thank you, Luke. One of my earliest memories growing up in New Jersey was looking up in the living room, I was just kind of walking around and there was a a big poster of a person on the wall of my house and you'd think it was an uncle or an aunt or a mom or dad or someone. And, by the way, I'm the youngest child of seven children so there's seven children in the House. My father is a doctor, my mother is a nuclear physicist in the 1950s when women in America weren't supposed to be doing those things and none of them was on the wall of the House. It was this man who i later would learn as i started to read better it said albert einstein and so the message was unmistakable for this little miniature version of jonathan that the mind is the most powerful thing in the world we can create peace in the world or great destruction and that was the message that i got and so i went on and i studied chemistry and biology and physics and yet At the same time, I felt this pulling from someplace that wasn't from my mind. And I didn't have a name for it. I didn't have a word for it. I just knew that I had these feelings that I had zero vocabulary for. And some of these feelings led to anxiety. I was very much an introvert. I was on the corner of the school, the classroom, you know, watching everyone else. I was studying with my nose in the book and this went on to high school and on to college. And I felt a little bit like a social outcast because I was the nerdy kid in the class. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there was tremendous pressure to achieve, to accomplish, to get the fancy degree. And so in order to get the approval of my parents and my brothers and my sisters and the people around me, I thought that I had to do something that from the outside looked special. I had no care about what it felt like on the inside, though I loved science. So I worked very hard to get into Harvard where I did my medical training. I thought that that would bring me happiness. Instead, I would go home at night, maybe having slept two or four or six hours, watching people live and die on the heart unit. And I felt miserable, deeply alone. So there was this thing building inside me of anxiety and depression. And I just eventually, eventually, I realized that it was very hypocritical in a way. I was the one supposed to be healing other people. And I felt so broken on the inside. So that's where my passion for what I'm doing today, which is very different than what I learned in medical school. I went to school for 12 years to learn the ins and the outs of the chemistry and the anatomy and the biology of how the heart lives and dies. But not at any moment did anyone talk to me about the role of anxiety and depression and grief and sadness and anger and rage and frustration and hopelessness on the beating heart in the chest. And so I would walk into the exam rooms of my patients. I couldn't help them, let alone the fact that I wasn't even getting any help myself. So that was over 10 years ago when I first said, I need help.
0: Wow, that's powerful, Doctor. And then you took a you made a shift, right? You started with mindfulness. Can you tell us how you sorted this problem out for you? Mm-hmm. You recognize the problem. As as we speak right now, we would work with doctors across the world. Mm-hmm. And pretty much like you, you know, a lot of them are suffering with their health problems, physical, mm-hmm. mental, burning out, divorces in the family, you know, kids waiting for their, you know, I mean, they're doing a noble job, no doubt about that but some of them are dying quicker than their own patients with cardiac diseases. You've recognized this. What was your next step in your
1: journey and how has that brought you to the place that you're in right now? So when I hit my lowest point, Luke, it was when I was in New York City and I was seeing two to 3,000 patients every year. I would go to the hospital at 4.30 in the morning or five in the morning and I would see 30 to 45 patients by myself the entire day. And at the same time, my best friend, who was my sister Andrea, called me and said, I'm having some blurry vision. And it turns out that she, who was a radiologist, who was trained to detect tumors and masses in other people, discovered that she had a tumor in her own brain. So just as I was struggling with my own inner turmoil, I was losing the ground of my life, who was my best friend who encouraged me to to seek help. And so after she died, Luke, and I was just balled up weeping on the floor of my New York City apartment with my new wife looking down at me, wondering how I would ever come back. I did what I only knew how to do, which was to get curious. And so I got on the internet and I typed in a question. And the question, Luke, was, how can I ever be happy again? Uh, what and did I tell led you? Me, yeah, that led me to things that just, it's, uh, it's the next 50 years of my life is to learn these things and to share these things in a very clear message, in a clear way that there's what's called positive psychology, which is not how do we just focus on the hardships in life, but what if we were to live the life that we could dream of? Many people go through their whole lives languishing not even considering that things could be so much better because they've given up all hope. And so the positive psychology is the science of creating intentionally a life that we want to feel. And then I discovered from that mindfulness and meditation, and I stumbled and stumbled for weeks. And you know, being the good student, I went on a retreat for a day. <laughs> and then I sat every day for 20 or 30 or 40 minutes in my closet next to my bedroom and getting fidgety. And I, and I sat still. And then I went for a two-day retreat and then three, and then I spent seven days in a silent Zen meditation monastery. And one thing led to another, and then I went to Oxford in the UK and became a certified teacher so that I could bring this wonderful holistic approach to healing the heart and spirit to a healthcare system that felt like it was breaking at the seams. Wow, wow. So you teach meditation today
0: and you get it into your practice at the same time, right? Doctor, I wanted to ask you, you've done over 20,000 hearts, you've seen patients. You know, today when you look back, what's the commonality? I mean, there are various reasons for people to have poor heart health. Mm -hmm. But when we look beyond just the symptom, Mm -hmm. you know, what are you seeing? What is this commonality that you're seeing amongst patients? Because, you know, cardiovascular is killing people across the world is one of the highest killers. And there are commonalities that we recognize in lifestyle medicine. I would love your take as a cardiologist who has also integrated mm. meditation and mindfulness and passion into your system of medicine.
1: Yeah. So Luke, I, I like the question because what you're asking is not how do we treat a symptom of chest pain? How do we wait till someone's in the hospital and spend a million dollars to put a stent in their heart or a surgery? What you are asking and what you're passionate is about is about getting to the roots, even going back into childhood even looking at your parents and your grandparents and the habits that we were brought up in. So I first will say that there are many of us who just are unfortunate. Maybe we inherited a heart valve problem so that we would need surgery, and that wasn't anything to do with our behavior. Or maybe we inherited a a gene that made our heart thick or the heart weak. And again, very little to do. Outside of those narrow cases, the vast majority of people around the world who are suffering from the number one killer in the world, which is coronary artery blockage, there's a common pattern. And the common pattern is a disconnection within that person from all the aspects of their heart. They may be focusing on just the physical heart, they can exercise all day long, and then when they get in a traffic jam on the way home from the gym to the house, they're cursing at the people and they're yelling and they're getting angry, or maybe They don't do that, but on the weekends, they're not addressing some of the frustrations about their past or about their future and they're drinking alcohol and they're smoking cigarettes and they're eating cheeseburgers and French fries all the time and drinking the delicious. sweet processed drinks and foods that we know are killing us and so the root problem Luke is a disconnection between our physical hearts. Our emotional hearts, which are driving certain behaviors and feeling lonely and disconnected our social hearts, all the conflict in our society, which is affecting us in our houses, and our spiritual hearts. There's a a decline in spirituality and a connection with something greater than ourselves. And I think human beings, were meant to have all of those and we're missing them. And it's taking its toll on the heart itself. Now, that's powerful what you say, doctor. You know, a couple of months ago, in fact, right
0: after the pandemic, I was speaking to a surgeon at Stanford, and he was saying, Luke, I'm 71 today. When I was 30, I looked at a symptom, a heart, and I said, I have a great job and great money coming into my bank account. He said, at 60, I realized everybody I open up, I'm just hit with the intelligence of a human being that is crumbling under suffering, anxiety, anger, disconnect, and all of that stuff. He said, it took me years to understand that what am I doing? I'm opening up the heart, I can save lives, but The underlying cause, no one's looking at that. There are no medicines for that. The farmers are not talking about that. No one's talking about it. So Mm -hmm. it's really powerful that you say all of this as a cardiologist because the disease has now become chronic and people are living with this problem because they're still just using either a statin, they're doing their workouts, like you said, but the base which is disconnect. I love the word that you use. We're literally disconnected from our authentic self. And that's why the world around us can control us. Every single emotion, whether it's the fear of missing out, comparison. So that's super powerful. So Dr. Fisher, how would you reimagine the life of a cardiac patient today? Because a lot of people watching this will watch it for prevention. And a lot of them are already cardiac patients. So -hmm. while they have, you know, we want the medicines, right time, we don't give up medical treatments. But how would you explain to a patient today or a human being out there with a faulty heart or a heart that's getting blocked up, yeah. how would they reimagine living to improve yeah. the health of their
1: heart? The, the very first thing, Luke, when someone comes to me with a heart problem and often they've had a heart attack and often that heart attack has caused damage to the pump. So the heart is weak and they have congestive heart failure where fluid keeps backing up into the lungs. The very first thing, and this is always the case that I would bring to these people is empathy and compassion, empathy and compassion, because it's so easy when someone comes into the clinic or the hospital, the doctor's very busy, the hospital needs to make money, and there's very little time. And so patients themselves want to have a quick fix, you know, we're in a society where, oh, I want to lose weight, so I'm going to take a pill, I'm feeling depression, so give me a pill. And so medicines have a wonderful role to play. Thank goodness we're born in this century when we have so many medicines and surgeries. And yet at the same time, we're missing a deep empathy and compassion for these patients who are stuck in a system that doesn't seem to care. And I'm not just saying this because it feels good for heart patients to be listened to by their doctor. I'm saying this because there is a literal physiologic change in the heart of someone who's had a heart attack when they feel loved, and supported by the doctor, the nurse, the pharmacist, the husband, the wife, the child, this is not some ancient mystical spiritual mumbo jumbo. The science points to the fact that empathy and compassion and love are the most powerful drug for healing our hearts. And then after we spend a lot of time on bringing love into our lives, love and compassion for ourselves, even in the face of all of our suffering, then we can talk about exercise and nutrition and all of these things. And there, as you know very well, Luke, and this is what I love about what you do, you don't just give people tips and tricks and things. You say change is necessary, but change is hard. So let's look at what makes change so hard in this human being and get to the root of habit change. So that's where I would begin. Awesome.
0: I wanna pick up on a couple of words that you just mentioned, you know, compassion, empathy. You know, you've been running this entire, you know, project of burnout with doctors and the community. Can you can you tell us what you've been doing? Because there are so many doctors and the easiest excuse, and I'm actually not just gonna say doctors, I'm gonna talk about CEOs and, you know, everyone in the corporate world. The excuse is, hey, listen, we don't have time. Yes, they are busy positions, busy designations. How are you breaking through with these doctors. And and what I love is your vision, Dr. Uh, Jonathan, because it's way beyond just a goal. Because the way I see it, what you're doing will impact the doctors, which in turn will impact the patients, which in turn will impact the communities within hospital, out of hospital. And that's Huge. That's Mm -hmm. so huge. So, I would love for you to take us through the project that you're working on and how you've been able to kind of bring number one awareness to doctors and the simple steps because everyone has an excuse of time and it's genuine. You're back in Mumbai, doctors have maybe like oncologists probably have two to three minutes, and you know, we can't judge them because that's how many patients there are in line outside. But what are some of the steps you've taken to make this system better? And at some point, it is on our radar to get you down to India, because we would love for you to impact the community over here, not just doctors, but even nutritionists, other medical professionals who are burning out. You know, we have a simple thing in our team, our doctors, our nutritionists. If you feel low today, taken off, recover and come back stronger, we'll cover for your patient, but we'd rather have you back strong. Then you know, not be yourself and not be yourself with the patients. So, we try it in our own way, but it's not possible with everyone else. So, over to you, Dr. Enlighten us, please. Thank you, Luke.
1: As you know, burnout is a huge challenge, and anyone who wants to approach it by a simple tip here and a trick and a yoga class there and a little meditation here, I'm going to kick them out of the room and I'm never talking to them again. So don't listen to someone who, if you say you're burned out, they're going to say, well, do a tree pose or a mountain pose for 10 minutes and you're going to be fine. So we really have to be smart about burnout. We have to be very smart. We can't just be only about compassion. We have to bring our brain back in now. And that means we have to see the systems at work, the forces at work outside of our own clinic, governmental Mm -hmm. forces, policy, insurance companies, there are a lot of factors that are happening in healthcare today where the incentives, and you alluded to this with the two minutes for the oncology visits, the incentives are to see patients as fast as we can. So the very first step in the solution to burnout for a doctor who's struggling or a nurse who's struggling is to recognize The things that are within their control to change today and the things that they have no control over right now. Because it's overwhelming enough to have to see all those patients. And then you see, I'm frustrated with the insurance company. I'm frustrated with my boss, with the president of the hospital. And so this is what the ancient Stoic philosophers called the dichotomy of control. And this isn't just for burnout, this is for any stress. When we're feeling stress, we should pause and say, is this? what's happening now? Is this something that I can control directly? Or can I focus on how I'm showing up in this situation? So the next thing I would say, Luke, is to recognize that burnout has two big factors. There's the organization, which is creating an environment which is very toxic oftentimes, where we just don't get to sleep and we don't get to stand up for ourselves and for our patients. And it creates what's called moral injury where a doctor, like a soldier, who's forced to kill and to fight and to do things that violate their values, that's what's causing a lot of the deep spiritual harm of physicians. So we first have to recognize that there's an organizational piece, which is the majority of burnout causes, but, and this is the big one, there's also a piece that we must own ourselves. And I know a lot of physicians who I speak to, if I say that, there's, a, there's an instant reaction, a protection of the ego, saying, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, it's the system's fault, and my response is, again, with deep empathy, yes, it's a very, very dysfunctional system, and you still get to make a choice, and it may mean making other sacrifices in your life, other changes in your life, there's always a choice, and so we can go in either direction, Luke, talking about what we're doing on an organizational level, I work at Novant Health, which is one of the large healthcare systems in the southeast of the United States. We have over 38,000 employees, and I'm on a team of five, what's called the Office of Wellbeing and Resiliency, and we have dozens of initiatives. Everything from going into the office and looking at all the pain points that are getting in the way of efficiency. We're looking, working with our digital products team, looking at the electronic health record, which is a key driver an obstacle causing burnout and disconnection from the patient and we're also looking at the individual providers themselves some some of us have habits that we don't even know about i may come into a room and i don't look at the patient and i type right away and i don't smile and i don't give them a warm touch i'm not bringing any empathy for myself or them and so that automatically makes it harder And so we do coaching on how we show up. We do coaching on empathic communication. And we even do coaching at the highest level for those doctors who were burning out and are coming out towards peak performance and executive excellence. And we take them for three days in a program offsite away from the hospital. And we train them to become leaders of their own lives with intentionality. So that's one end. The other end is we, we work with trauma experts, psychologists, psychiatrists, who are helping doctors and nurses who've seen deep trauma. So, Luke, it's an incredibly fascinating spectrum from the most suffering to those that are coming out of it. And we have to look not only at that, but also at the entire life cycle of the healer, from the first day of medical school to the last day of practice, because a lot of doctors don't feel any sense of growth in their career, in their life. And what we know in the workplace is Unless you have a sense of personal growth and development, we tend to stagnate and pull away. So, the last thing I want to say there is that I'm very fortunate. I recognize that. There's a privilege of working in my hospital system, which is very far beyond a lot of other systems in the world right now. And it's because my boss, his name is Dr. Tom Jenicki. He's the Chief well-being Officer. He started these programs over 10 years ago when he began to see that we needed to address burnout in healthcare. And the other person I need to mention is a a hero of mine. And his name is Dr. Vivek Murthy. Dr. Mm -hmm. Murthy is the Surgeon General of the United States. Can you believe this? The Surgeon General, the highest doctor in the land of America is focused on one thing, and it's ending the epidemic of loneliness and disconnection, and also as it's causing burnout in healthcare because he knows what it's like. And we have to heal the healers in order to heal the patients.
0: I love that. You need to heal the healers before you heal the patients. You're absolutely right about that. You know, A lot of the system is broken. And really, we don't want to blame anyone. It's really no one's fault. But I like that you're putting the system back together, doctor. It's just amazing the little things that you're doing, going right back from the time they joined medical school and the journey right through. Because this is a problem, not just in the the world of allopity, it's even with nutritionists, dietitians, other doctors from different fields of medicine. You know, sometimes we have people who are going through depression, but they're treating patients. I know it's okay, but they can't separate the emotions. And the patient's suffering now becomes their suffering. Doctor, I wanted to ask you, yeah, and I have to go back and circle back with, you know, how allopity kind of gets a bashing sometimes that they only treat the symptom and not the root cause. But that happens outside allopity as well, like the tree pose, like you said, you know, that's just a symptomatic approach. Do a tree pose and you feel good, but the underlying root cause is still missed out. So thank you for mentioning that. Doctor, you've seen cases all through your life. You've seen death. I do remember at the dinner at California, you all spoke about, you know, having to speak to parents who have lost a child and all of that. How have you managed trauma? How have you managed seeing death? of little children, adults, people where a loving family is waiting outside. You know, how do you handle this? What are your coping mechanisms and what are your tips out there to people who go through this on a daily basis? I would love to know that. Mm.
1: Luke, the question that you're asking is fundamental. It's fundamental because we go into the practice of healthcare and many patients don't realize this, but those of us who are called to heal and to help others, we often don't contemplate the meaning of death and the role of death in our lives. We go through school and we think that our job is to prolong life at any cost. But we mm-hmm. don't focus on where does death fit into to life. And I'm going to take this here this has to go into the realm of spirituality. I think the answer is we have to bring more conversations into first year medical school, nursing school, nutrition school about where does death fit into the spectrum of life and some of the eastern traditions in India and elsewhere this is part of the education is that life and death are two sides of the same coin and yet in the west that's not part of our culture it's all about you know we do cosmetic surgery we stay young forever and so there's this broader culture environment that the doctors are working in Where we expect to live forever. Even books, if you look at popular books right now, it's live forever. That's the most popular thing. And I think there's a there's a slight danger in that, Luke. And the danger is the message is it's not okay to die. Hmm. And you'd say, Well, of course we shall want to die. But I just I think we need to slow down the conversation because doctors, and I'm talking for myself now, I suffered for years because every time a patient would get sick and would die. I would either cry or feel like it was my fault, I did, I I failed them, I did something wrong, because I remember I was trained to help people live. And so I would say the answer is, at some point we have to make a shift and take the responsibility of learning how to help people die as well, and to embrace that that's part of our calling. And now, once we do that, that automatically brings up this very uneasy feeling inside of us. I can hear right now people saying, are you crazy? You're going to help people die? That's not your job. And that's because there's a discomfort we all have. It's existential. It's part of being born, is this fear of death. And so Mm -hmm. this is where the spiritual quest comes in, making peace with the fact that there is life, there is growth, and there is death, and there is life beyond. Whatever that means, that may be connection to other people or a spirituality. So I know this isn't a simple little answer to the question that you asked, but th- when you ask, this is what comes up for me. And that's what I want. I want it
0: real and raw, and that makes a lot of sense. I would like to share a story as well, Dr. Jonathan. When I started off my practice, I was put straight with terminally ill cancer patients. Mm-hmm. So one one out of three of my patients wouldn't make it for the next one week. And I would be emotionally attached to this. I would know how to handle debt. I I think what I found more difficult was not the death of the patient, but the pain of the family left behind. Mm. You know, you would have to see them go through grief. The patient's died. He's gone. She's gone. And I would go home. I was newly married at that point. And if I saw sugar at home or I saw anything, I would just take it out on the family saying that, you know, there are people dying out there and you have sugar in the house and you, so I was projecting all of my pain and, you know, all of that. But when I look back, I think it was part of the whole journey to learn, uh, you know, and spirituality came in. There was this one, there was this one line I read one day, it just popped up on Instagram. I honestly don't know from which spiritual scriptures it may be from, but it was written clearly from the time you are born, you start to die. And I reflected on this. And at every level of biology, physiology, chemistry, anatomy, it's true. From the time we're born, there's an age to everything our cells, our bones, our eyes, and everything else. So, why do we have to look at death negatively? Now, how can we live or die gracefully? And just by changing our perception of death, you know, everything starts to get not easy, but more understandable.
1: It's so. it's so true Luke uh, and, I, and I just I appreciate that as you were telling the story about being with the parents afterwards. I can totally relate to that and looking into the eyes of someone and feeling their pain, which brings me to something I it's really important and I and I didn't get this education and i'm passionate about sharing this with other doctors and healers, and this is the difference between empathy and compassion. and teaching something very important about empathy itself. So if you're, if I'm with a patient and let's say they've died and I have to go talk to their family outside the intensive care unit and explain it all and face all of what they're feeling and the tears and sometimes the yelling or the screaming, um, it can be very hard for me. And there's a a, a Buddhist a monk, her name is Joan Halifax. And Joan Halifax has written books about dying because she worked in hospice care and she said To be with people who are dying or those that they love, we have to have a soft belly, but a firm spine. And this means that, can we be open to the emotions that are in the room, to holding a space for all of the pain? Because if we close the pain down and we shut ourselves off, it makes it worse for the family left behind. But if we wanna really allow ourselves the beauty of being in this healing profession, we can open our hearts. At the same time, the firm spine means We don't let ourselves get carried away with the same pain that they're feeling because we'll be swept down the river. So there's this ability to have empathy for what they're feeling without letting our own bodies get carried away with the same feelings so that we're no longer grounded as a source of support and solace for them.
0: I love that you talk about that holding space, such a powerful, powerful statement, because a lot of people don't know how to hold space even not just doctors or nutritionists, even families, there's always like, oh, don't worry, going to a better place, you'll be fine, be strong, all of that stuff. And sometimes just holding space is the most powerful thing. Letting people cry, you cry with them if you have to. I think that's very powerful, w- what you just mentioned. You know, Dr. Jonathan, compassion, a lot of people get confused between compassion and kindness. Okay, you clearly established empathy how would you explain the difference between compassion, kindness, and empathy? Is there a similar meaning? How would we
1: kind of understand this better? It's very simple to separate. One relates to facing people and helping them when they're suffering, and the other is all the time. So if someone is suffering and we wanna bring love to them, that's called compassion. Compassion Mm -hmm. is when you're helping somebody, but not just feeling what they're feeling or understanding it. That's empathy. So if you have broken your leg just now and I just say, oh, I feel so bad for you. I feel so bad, Luke. That's empathy. And empathy is a good start. It shows that I'm curious and paying attention, but it's not enough. We have Mm -hmm. to take empathy and activate it with compassion which according to the the Dalai Lama, compassion is empathy in action. So it means a commitment, I'm paraphrasing there, but it means committing not just to feeling what the other person is feeling, but what can I do now? And it may, I don't have to fix something, I can simply again hold that space of love, because love decreases the stress hormones, which helps the person heal. So empathy is feeling the suffering, or the joy, Just to be clear here, we often focus on the negative, the negative, the negative, and I know this conversation is about grief and anger and sorrow, that's so important. And yet I also love to bring the conversation to the opposite end of the spectrum of living and flourishing, which is what are the other emotions we can bring in moments of suffering, we can bring hope, we can bring joy, we can bring beauty, even in those moments. And so empathy can be if you said, you know, I just got married or I had this amazing event at my workplace or like when I see your posts and you're teaching all the soldiers and the doctors, all these incredible things in India. I have a moment as I'm looking at my phone, I have a moment of empathy because I see you smiling and I see them all learning and I say, wow, this is amazing. So I don't want to forget that that's also empathy. Beautiful. You know, uh, doctor,
0: you spoke about, yeah, you spoke about compassion. You spoke about kindness. When we break down compassion, you know, a lot of people say, I'm being compassionate to someone, which means I'm feeling the emotion. You spoke about another very powerful word, action. Okay. And you also spoke about at the start of the podcast, we always have a choice. How do you bring these things together? I believe the world is stuck right now. A lot of the world. See, we have information. We have knowledge. We have AI. We have everything, but a lack of action. Mm -hmm. I was in New York a week ago uh, with Keshav, in fact, and we were doing this whole event. And I felt a sudden shift in my heart while we were talking about the same things, do yoga, do this great content, great speakers. But at the end, I felt a shift like I'm tired. Mm -hmm. What we lack is action. How do we get people to start doing everything we know, because most of us know almost everything that we should do. We know the French fries are bad. We know that sleep is good. We know that living a life with intention and purpose makes us feel good. Mm. What stops us from moving to action? Mm. I would love your advice, because specifically, you identified a problem, you felt it, you made a difference, you moved to action. And today you've created this massive impact where you work and literally rippling across the globe i would love your advice to our audience on how do we move to action knowing that we always have a
1: choice yeah it's it's such a it's such a wonderful question luke and that's a question um, that doesn't have one answer at one moment in time every moment is a new opportunity to decide what's the next best action so yes we can set a five-year goal and at the same time meet that with some flexibility and fluidity with the action When I hear the question Luke I my mind goes in two places, on the one hand, the question is how do we bring action to our own lives when we feel stuck. i'm stuck on the couch watching netflix for hours eating popcorn and ice cream and I just can't change I can't break out of it so that's we can talk about this. Which is you know there's a reason there's a billion dollar industry right now on habit change. The tiny habits atomic habits this habits habits this there's a reason, because we are wired in such a way. That we're not wired to be happy or even necessarily healthy as humans We're, we're wired for survival and we have this tricky brain that often makes choices that choose comfort and ease rather than seeing the long term and so. I hear in the question, there's a question about how do we shift towards action as individuals, which I love that it's something that I'm working with myself, even today, how did I get myself out of my house to work out and and to go sweat this morning. When I wanted to stay in bed so it's not like I have the answer, but I have some ideas and then there I, I heard behind your question there's another which I think is even more fascinating for those of us, I think, who are having the courage to be present and social media, to go and to speak in, on stages and to large groups of people, because we want to see a positive change in the world that's suffering now. And so is that, is that correct? I'm hearing these kind of two angles here, yeah? And so, yeah. And so the second piece, I, I'll speak to the second piece, because there's lots of good books about habit change and all of this, and people can read your books and they're they gonna learn everything they need to know about how to go into personal action. But for those of us who, want to make a a bigger dent, I guess I would say, Um, I would say we can become compassionate influencers. So, you know, it's not not to make a dig at Kim Kardashian, she's amazing, amazing. But, you know, you can look at someone online and see where is the heart, where is the heart to uh, promote something that is um, going to make you feel good in the moment to look good, etc. Or is it going to the root the root of our suffering? Again, this is what you're doing, this is the work that you're doing, and I would say if we want to be influencers and change the world, I mean Gandhi said itself, you have to work within your own circle by yourself. But then we have to study the science of influence, and I know that you've studied this science. The science of influence is about when you and I are speaking, Luke, if I have something that's really important that I need to communicate with you, I can't just yell it in your face. I can't complain and moan all the time. I have to think about you. I have to have empathy for the people that I want to impact and influence. And every effective leader in the world knows this, that to create a movement to positive change, and there's lots of leaders in the world, we have to start with one conversation with one person that, that you and I are having right now. Can I be open and listen to what you're saying and allow for something new to emerge from the conversation, but expressing my value? so. I think i'd love to sit with you and talk about you know how we can change the world for a long period of time, but for people listening, I will just say one thing. Change is really hard action can be really hard there's this rule in physics, which is called inertia. And it applies to the human spirit too. if we've been stagnant for so long it's hard to get that first movement and then the second one, but once we get a little kick and it may be by listening to your podcast. Somebody will say I'm going to take only one action today and make it an easy one. Don't say I'm going to lift 150 pounds. I'm going to lift one pound one time and then I'm going to celebrate and pat myself on the back and say I did better than I did yesterday. And that creates a rush of dopamine so that tomorrow I remember the feeling of taking that one action and now I'll do
0: two actions. Wow, that's beautiful. And I am going to ask you to leave us with one action for the audience at the end. But now let's move on to you. What's your routine, doctor? You 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 look amazingly young. You're fit. <laughs> Everyone should know that he finished a workout and jumped onto the podcast. I like that. I like that. Take me through your routine. I know you're extremely busy in the profession you are. But I always say that's another interesting fact, you know, we have communities of people in different organizations, not just doctors, you have pilots, you have nurses, the police force. And there's one part of them that say, we have no time to work out. Mm. The other population works out, they find time. So what really is the problem? It's not the lack of time, otherwise the entire organization wouldn't be able to work out. Mm. But most of them are and a couple aren't. Take mm. us through your routine. Tell us a little bit about your, the food that you love, what you eat, mindfully keep yourself healthy, your workout, your sleep, would love to know that.
1: Absolutely, I, I'd be happy to talk about the routine. Now, you can probably expect how I'm going to begin this answer, Luke, because I, I always begin with empathy. Okay, I'm not going to tell a thousand, a hundred thousand listeners to say that I do every one of these things every day and it's easy to do. <laughs> I have to remember every day, and sometimes I listen to you and I say, "Up, oh, Luke is reminding me to exercise." So, but with that out of the way, okay, we're all human beings. It begins when we open our eyes in the morning, so when I open my eyes in the morning, I ask myself, how would I like to feel today, how would I like to feel today, and how would I like other people that I interact with, that I have the privilege of interacting with, like you and my patients, how would I like them to feel after being with me? And that can guide my entire day, what I eat, how I exercise, because I know if I don't eat healthy, I don't exercise, I I don't read an interesting book, everything shuts down and I don't feel the way I wanted to feel with that intention and other people don't feel uplifted, empowered and inspired when I speak with them. So I wake up in the morning, I have a routine that I do and I set my mindset, it takes about five minutes and I begin by breathing. I enter into my body. I say, this mind has been working for 50 years. I'm going to let it rest for a minute. I take a breath, check in with the body. How am I feeling? And then I exhale slowly. I activate my parasympathetic nervous system. I remind myself that this state is always available throughout the day when the stress runs high and patients are sick, I can check in with the breath and exhale. And then I bring a smile to my face. Even if I'm having a hard day, sometimes I, I just bring a little smile and I remember something ha- happy or positive that happened in my life. And I get a little kick of serotonin, a little, a little juice. And then it makes it easier to do the next step, which is I, I, I generate thoughts in my mind of gratitude. So like tomorrow morning, I may have a smile. I say, gosh, you know, Luke invited me into a conversation. He didn't have to do that. And so I'm going to have that feeling tomorrow morning to start my day, by the way. So that's what I'm starting the day with the gratitude, and then the next thing I do, and I all do this in bed, it takes five minutes, I bring an idea in myself, I ask a question, who loves me or who ever loved me in my life, because a lot of us feel alone, very alone. But you can always maybe think back to your life, maybe it was a childhood, maybe it was a grandma, maybe it was a religious leader, somebody, and there's always been somebody and we forget what it felt like to be loved. And in, in that moment of love, we feel the compassion rising. And then I think, well, who who can I love? Who can I love? Can I I can love my wife today? I how can I love her better? Bring action into love. I can love my three teenagers better. I can love my patients better. Uh, love is really the answer for so many things. And so this is I know this is a long answer, Luke. But no, no, keep, keep flowing. Keep flowing. Okay. Okay. I don't I don't want to take up too much time, but this is just the beginning of my day. What First five want. minutes. Yeah. Please go so so the the morning routine is before i get out of bed i bring a sense of, of gratitude of presence in the body a sense of love and then i do something very important before i finish this exercise i remember not all the things that are either broken about me or things that i'm ashamed of or things that i've been working on but i remember the best parts about me and it may just be one thing like i'm just very curious i'm always asking questions i always want to know about what makes people tick. And so I think, okay, how can I flex that muscle, not the bicep, but this curiosity that I have, like when I saw Albert Einstein from a little kid, I want to be curious like him. So I take that and I say, that's my strength. And I'm going to live in my strength today. Now, someone else listening, their strength could be analytical mind. It could be a programming. I'm going to be doing great today. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You get to choose. But for me, I usually choose curiosity or kindness. And the last part of this morning routine, and again, before I get out of bed, before I go to the gym, before I eat all my vegetables and my plants and stay away from all the sugars and the processed foods and the pizzas and all that. So I I do all that and I try to get some sleep. The last thing I do is after I decide, well, what's my strength and how can I bring it with love and gratitude into the world? I close my eyes and I imagine, I can see in my mind, myself getting out of bed, going into the clinic, seeing my staff who's helping me, how I'm going to behave with them, how they're going to respond to me. And then I imagine myself knocking on the door of the first of the 20 or 24 patients each day. I imagine the smile or the empathic touch or whatever happens. And I can see in my mind how the person is going to respond. And I used to think that this was like magic. This visualization practice, but there's a very good reason that the top athletes in the world, the top violinists in every symphony around the world. The top skiers, the top cricket players, they all do this practice. Why can't doctors do it? Why can't nurses do it? This power of bringing this sense of how you want to show up in the world and visualizing it, it literally makes it more likely to happen. Wow. I love your morning ritual. I think there's a
0: lot of power in morning rituals. Yours is backed by intention. I love that. And I love that you spoke about visualization. I mean, I believe who I am today is built on that practice of visualization. I strongly believe in it. And the days I don't do it, you can feel that day is not probably gone the way it should. And since you speak about visualization, doctor, you know, we have this special visualization guided technique that we teach our patients who are going in through chemotherapy or radiation, where they actually visualize the chemo going into them is doing something positive. It's boosting the exact opposite of what the side effects are. Mm. And we have oncologists saying that these particular patients who have done the visualization, their side effects are minimum. And even though they get some, because each chemo can be harsher in different ways, Mm. they're smiling through it. Mm-hmm. They've literally programmed their mind not to believe that it's good, because we believe that even if you're putting a pill, you have faith in it. and and if it's negative, you're going to reject it at every level in your mind. So you might as well imagine the best. I love mm-hmm. your ritual. and I love the passion with which you talk, doctor. it's It's so infectious. It's so, so <laughs> inspiring. Oh thank you so much for that, Doctor. I want to talk about I want to talk about your book. I know you have this upcoming book. I can't wait to get my hands on it because it you know focuses on so many things like loneliness, shame, guilt, but mm. a lot more. Please mm. tell us about this book. Why did you write number one? and what do you what, what's your intention for the readers? What is the impact that you're looking for through this book?
1: Mm. I love the way you asked that question, and I really am grateful um for your enthusiasm about the book. This Luke is a book that I am very um very passionate about. I wish that I had this book when I was a teenager. Honestly, I wish I had it when I was a teenager, because if you look at what's happening with our teenagers today, there's so much loneliness, isolation, et cetera. And the messages and and the teachings that they're getting aren't teaching them to be grounded in themselves, to experience connection and compassion. I also wish that I had it when I was a medical student, because I wouldn't have spent 10 years in isolation, anxiety, depression, and burnout. And so that's where it's coming from. And lastly, it comes from seeing people's broken hearts. We began the conversation, you asked, what's at the root? And I said, the root is disconnection. And so I thought, well, how can I write a book that isn't one that has already been written about, well, you should eat more salad and you should don't smoke cigarettes, you know, these are, these are easy tips. That's the easy work we have to do the hard work. And so this book is a very plain language, easy to understand way of doing what I think is the, the journey. Of living a whole life with the whole heart. And so it's called A Cardiologist's Guide to Healing, Health, and Happiness. And some people would say, well, those should be three different books. What are you doing? And I believe strongly that there's a complete connection between how happy we are, not in this moment by eating a donut. I'm talking about long term, the sense of happiness that we get when we're connected with a bigger purpose than ourselves, happiness when we're socially connected. And so the book has two parts. The first part, is about how did we get here? This, this deep connect, disconnection in society between politics and even within ourselves, how does the mind work? Why do we feel like we get stuck in these patterns? And I talk about how the heart works. And then I say that in order for us to heal, we can't focus on one heart. We have to focus on all four hearts that we have. And we have four hearts, all of us, but we often ignore two or three of them. And so the book is called Just One Heart because we have a physical heart, We have an emotional heart, we have a social heart, and we have a spiritual heart, and it's when we deny those things that we are deprived of true healing, holistic healing. So it's called Just One Heart, and part two of the book is the part that I'm most excited about. I've spoken to over 50 leaders around the world in this space, including you, Luke, and the purpose was to learn what are the common elements of healing that all healers bring to themselves and others. And I realized that these are all aspects of the heart. When you talk about, oh, he has an open heart, he has a wise heart, he has a warm heart. And so part two is helping people very simply, what are the tools and strategies to develop these seven timeless traits of the healing heart? Beginning with steadiness, steady heart. I go into the emergency room, the heart's going so fast. I don't talk about their childhood. I begin with steadying the heart. So we can do that on an emotional level as well with grounding practices, mindfulness, meditation, yoga. And then after we steady our heart, then we bring in a wise heart. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? And then after wisdom, then we can become open. We can learn to open our hearts and not close ourselves off so much. And after openness, we can develop a courage. Courage. We need even courage. The word courage comes from cur, Latin, which means heart. So, why have thousands of years we've believed that courage comes from the heart? Well, the heart has an example for us. It never gives up, and so we bring courage, and after we find courage, my my favorite teachers, they're not very serious people, they're often very light-hearted people, like the smile that you have now. It comes like naturally, right? And not, you know, life is hard. we've lost people, we've loved people, we've watched pain and suffering. And yet it's still possible, even in the depths of sorrow, after that, to find some lightness and joy. And so I'm closing the book with a lightness. And then the last chapter is called warmth. How can we bring a warm-heartedness? So compassion and empathy and all these practices. And that's that's what the book Just One Heart is about, Luke.
0: Wow. Well, it's it's surely going in our university. We run a we run an integrative and lifestyle medicine university. We have Students who are doctors, nurses, that's going to be part of the curriculum, your book for sure. Ah, thank I mean, you. It's gonna tell a story on its own. And you know, uh, I, I really can't wait for this book to come out. I I love how you've tied everything together and the root cause of it. Mm. You're so right. You know, there's no medicine that can fix disconnect. We gotta do that work. I love that you talk about people having to do their work because today a lot of people, it's instant gratification and shortcuts. Give me a pill for everything but no one wants to do the work, even in therapy, Mm -hmm. even emotional therapy. They want to outsource their problems. They want to be heard, but they don't want to do the work. Mm -hmm. They're happy with a pill and just someone listening to them. Mm -hmm. I I can't wait for this book. Uh, Doctor, when when does this book come out and is it going to be available all over the world?
1: Yes. So Luke, it's available for pre-sale right now, just for the next two weeks. So anybody who wants to get a signed copy with me, a personal note in the next two weeks, and uh, there's a launch party and there's other perks involved. If you go to a website, it's called Just One Heart Book. It's justoneheartbook.com. You can get it now, and that ends on June 16th. After that, there's a wait list. It'll be available on Amazon and on Audible and internationally in early 2024.
0: That's amazing. It's amazing. Dr. I wanted to ask you, in our field of cancer, we have identified scientifically and also with just experience and that commonality thread, the impact of suppressed emotions over the years, like resentment, guilt, negativity with direct certain cancers, like an ER-positive breast cancer, a prostate, and so many different things. Because when we diagnose, we diagnose holistically. You know, It's all the pillars, including disconnect and suppression. And there's a clear thread of people who have suppressed these kinds of emotions. And I'm talking about over the years. We can be resentful. We can be negative. It doesn't mean we're going to get a cancer. But when it's suppressed and it's continuous, it's chronic suppression, we notice this. Is it the same with the heart as a cardiologist? Have you recognized the same commonalities in some of your patients? Mm. I'd love to hear about that.
1: Absolutely. There is no question about it, Luke. In about 90% of all of my patients, if I pause for a moment and I ask about their emotional life, the ones who have really suffered with heart attacks and things, I can usually, if I create a little gentle space, a little time, and I ask the right questions, questions that have never been asked to the person before they may become a little emotional they may start to maybe tear up or something quivering here because no one's ever asked them about what was the pain like when you lost your wife 10 years ago, how did you grieve over that what's happening with your second daughter, I hear you're not talking with her anymore, what does it feel like. When you were a child, you were moving all around the world, because your father was in the military, you never had a sense of home. You've always been searching and seeking. You've never found that. What is that like? And so I'm not pretending to be a therapist, a psychiatrist, or anything. I'm just a heart doctor, but I'm allowed to ask questions about what emotions have been beneath the surface. I ask about anger. I'm always asking about, do you get frustrated a lot, easily? And it's usually never about the thing they're frustrated about, it's usually something happened in their past that hurt them, somebody who, you you know, took something from them or injured them, and they didn't practice forgiveness of themselves. Because we often blame ourselves for what happened to us, it's backwards, I know. And then they also didn't learn the practice and the work of forgiveness towards others when the time is right. Luke, I'm happy to say that one of the 50 experts for the book that I interviewed and as a friend and was with us in California was Dr. Gabor Mate. And Dr. Gabor Mate has written the book on this very subject. And I asked him about that for for my book. And his book is called When the Body Says No. And it's exactly the question you're asking. You know, if, if we are in a workplace that's very toxic environment and we put up with it for a year or five years and 10 years, and instead of saying, I'm going to make whatever sacrifices I need, I'm out of here. We put up with it, we put up with a toxic partner, a toxic boss, and we never learn to assert ourselves and to communicate the feelings that are inside of us. Instead, we say, oh, thank you, thank you. Or we yell and we scream. We're never fully addressing the deeper emotion. And so Dr. Mate says, when we keep saying, you know, yes, yes, yes to all of the pain that's happening over and over, The body says no. It holds on to that in the form of inflammation and a reduced immune system, which can lead to heart disease, cancer, etc. And lastly, I need to say one thing. I don't want anyone listening to believe that if they have cancer or they have heart disease or they have a medical problem, that it's the fault because they didn't do some emotional work. I I don't want anyone to feel, oh, I didn't. I didn't pray hard enough. I didn't meditate hard enough. I didn't, it's my fault. It's, it can be true that these things are contributing, but it's never a person's fault that their mind wasn't strong enough to overcome this issue in the body. So I, so I really feel strongly I need to say that.
0: I think that's beautiful because we want to remove guilt. We want to remove shame right there, but we do have to come back to the fact that you stated, we need to do the work to fix that beyond the prescription. We need to put in that work now to start addressing those emotions and everything else. Mm. Doctor, this has been fantastic. I don't want to end this, but <laughs> we are going to get you back on the show if you give us time once your book is released. Yeah. You know, I'm sure it's going to be a bestseller all over. And I would love to connect with you again once our audience, myself, we've all read the book. And I mean, there's so much to learn from you and it's beyond just the prescription. And like you said, nutrition and all of that stuff, I would love to dive deeper into connection. And I think between now and the next couple of months, there would be so much more that you would be able to share with us with your journey, you know, that's happening. But thank you, doctor. I just want to ask you one more question. If you had the entire attention of the world on you right now, Mm -hmm. what is that one message you would leave with people?
1: Oh Luke, thank you for your kind words, first of all, and I I really I want to pause and thank you for the work that you do i've been fortunate to meet a lot of leaders around the world. And there are a few that have really inspired me because there is this light that's coming and you can't see exactly where it's coming from and the depth and a a steadiness um, and an intention to help others and you really show up like that. And I know you're going to continue to, and so to be a little part of your orbit, it's a privilege for me, so I, I want you to know that. Now, the question you asked me is what's the message and I'll share the message that's very, it's very personal for me, uh, because it's a message that really saved my life. When I was struggling with anxiety and depression as a young medical student, it was not okay in my family to, to feel those things. In fact, I didn't tell anyone except for the one person, which was my sister, Andrea, who, as you know, later went on to die a few years later of a brain tumor. And she saw how I was struggling. And she knew me from the baby when I was a happy kid. And now she knew me as a very heavy hearted person. And we were texting. It was the very early days of text messaging. And she one day said something. She said, it was five words. She said, Johnny, can you just be kind to yourself? And I thought, I don't know how to do that. I know how to beat myself up and to be critical and to harsh and to force myself to work out and to do all these things and be very regimented. I don't know how to be kind to myself. And she started me on a 10 year journey of learning how to really love myself, all parts of myself, the parts that I was ashamed of too, so that I could show up as a whole person and that I would know that other people had those parts too. And they needed space. So my message for you and for the world would be what Andrea shared with me, which was, can we just be kind to ourselves and see what happens?
0: That's beautiful. This has been amazing, doctor. Thank you so much for your time. And we will have the pre-link of your book in our show notes and everything else. And uh, all I can say is thank you. I mean, there are no other words, but just thank you. This has been inspiring to me at a personal level, at a professional level, my whole team's probably watching this and everyone else, you've made an impact. You made a huge impact and it's gonna continue. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you. Thank you, you, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for more. We're gonna continue our journey, learning, sharing and evolving.